Romans 11. You'll find that on page 1138 in your pew Bibles. We're going to be starting at verse 1 through to about halfway through verse 26. Romans 11, starting at verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, They have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches." If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, 
but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Thanks for reading that. Uh, Fiona. Um, Do keep it open in front of you. Let me pray as we come to look at uh, these words. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you. Even in this letter, Paul tells us everything written here in the Bible was written for encouragement so that we might have hope. And please, as as we tackle this passage, would you help us hear what you're saying to us so that we would um acknowledge you in your rightful place in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, at the beginning of the 20th century, I chances were if your dad was a baker, you'd probably be a baker as well. That's the way things kind of worked. But society changed, all sorts of things. Among them, better transport made it easier to travel for education and jobs. People moved into cities, so choices expanded. Uh, you could move, you could choose something different too. I guess the point where, where we're at today, where if you want to be authentic, you're almost obligated to choose something different to your family. I've got to do something, got to do something different with my life, unique to me, personal. And you see how far those choices have gone in our society, because we're now living in an age where it's become incredible for people to, to say that they won't even speak about the gender of their children Uh, because it's something they'll have to choose for themselves. That's not an unusual thing uh, to hear these days. Now, while it might be overly constraining uh, to have the same job as your dad, my dad was in the Merchant Navy, I don't think I would have enjoyed something like that. That might have been overly constraining. But we seem to be living in a world where there's practically nothing upon which to orientate your own sense of identity now, apart from the choices you make. That's where you get your sense of identity from. It's all down to your choices. There's no external authorities to appeal to, even to the point where biological sex is viewed as potentially misleading for some. can't even rely on that for understanding who you are. But with the abundance of choice, you know how it is. I, I mean, we don't, ha- used to have, we don't have kind of video shops anymore. Nobody needs them. But I remember, those of you who are old enough, going into video shops and the abundance of choice. And I'd go in to choose a video to watch. And then I'd come home without one because there was too many. I couldn't make up my mind. It was overwhelming. You can probably do it with Netflix now. You sit and look through for something to watch. It's too many. I can't make up my mind. 
And it's interesting because some are beginning to wonder if this abundance of choice is, is it really producing a kind of secure identity? And instead of that, what it seems to be producing is kind of false confidence. People who are beginning to think, well, look, I should be able to do anything. And then along with that comes a kind of fragile ego that struggles with criticism. Somebody tells me I can't do something. I don't know what to do with that. And then alongside that, there's a growing anxiety that's being recognized with people worrying about making wrong choices. If everything's a choice, what if I make the wrong one? And you think into that, if that's the world I'm living in, how do you orientate yourself? And into our world, the Bible still speaks in a countercultural way because it says, look, there is a good external authority around which we can orientate ourselves. And the most important choices are not ours, but his. And in this letter we're looking at, this term Romans, Paul puts before us the Christian vision of the God of glory. Who God is. What people are. How life is to be lived. And Paul's explained, it is a while since we've done the first part of the letter, but Paul explained in the first part God's big plan to rescue people through the saving work of Jesus. And these past three weeks, as we've come back to Romans in chapters 9, 10, and 11, they're, they're sort of like a pause in the letter as Paul tackles a question about God's big plan. And it centers around his Old Testament people, Israel. And the question is something like this. Uh, We've been looking at it, if you've been here these past few weeks. Uh, Why is it, if God has such great plans, most of his people reject it? They've not chosen it. Did God's plan fail? Or is it something like this? Did God pick one set of people, but they turned out to be worse than expected, so he's kind of dumped them now for a better set? what Paul referred to as Gentiles, I guess most of, uh, most of the people who are here tonight, those of us who are not from a Jewish background. And Paul's answer that we've been looking at gives a way to understand God, who he is, and to orientate life. So this evening, what we're going to try and do for the next 20 minutes or so is try and recap the big ideas of chapters 9 and 10, briefly explain chapter 11, and then give four ways this good news should orientate life. Look, chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, those big questions, look, did, did God fail? Whatever he was doing in the Old Testament, was that a failure by not saving more people? Or is he choosing, is he choosing a better people, people like most of us now? And chapter 9, look, Paul's answer, quoting the Old Testament, if you just turn back a page and you find chapter 9 and verse 15, it's over on the left-hand side of page 1136, down towards the bottom, quoting the Old Testament, Paul wrote this, for he says to Moses, that's God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul says, look, if you wonder why God saves some and not others, well, look, understand that's what God always said he'd do. We're people who've turned from God. 
And Paul says, look, when you ask, why does God save some and not others? The Bible says, wrong question. That is the wrong question to ask. Now, the real question is, why does God save anyone at all? He doesn't need to. He's not obligated to. And the answer is because he's chosen to. It's his choice, not ours. He's chosen to be merciful to some. God's choices are at the center of the universe, not mine. God's not failed. He's always chosen to save some and not others. You go on into chapter 10, and Paul outlined the way God saves people, how he does it. No, he's chosen to save people, but how does he do it? And it's, it's not the way that you'll come across in most other religions. At some level, when you begin to look at other religions of the world, other ways of faith, at some level, the, the message is try harder. Be as good as you can. And when you understand that, it's really, it's really trying to save yourself. In some way, it's saying, look, if you do enough, if you try hard enough, you work hard enough, in some way, you, you can do enough things to kind of deserve heaven and defeat death. But Paul says, no, no. God says, no, the only way to be saved is through someone else who can deserve heaven and defeat death for you. And that person, that person is Jesus. And so Paul told us, in this Christian faith, what saving faith looks like. If you, again, if you've got the Bible in front of you, just look over to chapter 10. And if you find verse 9, it's at the top of the right-hand page, page 1137. And Paul puts it like this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's the only one who deserves heaven. And you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, he's the only one who can defeat death. Paul says, if you trust him, then, then you'll be saved. Saving faith says, I can't do anything at all. There's nothing in me. Not my goodness, not my religious activity. No, I need Jesus. His perfect life lived for me. His death on the cross dying for me. But Paul said, look, many of God's people heard and understood that, but then they said no. And when they rejected Jesus, they did what they wanted. They're responsible. And you get those two things in your head. Those, those who are saved, it's only because God has saved them. And he does that through faith in Jesus. But at the same time, those who say no to God, we're, we're responsible for saying no. And now in chapter 11, at Paul's finishing up, explaining how we're to think about the, the Old Testament people of Israel. If you come back to the the beginning of chapter 11 and verse 1. And here's the question Paul's asking. As you think about them, all the people from Old Testament Israel, and Paul says, look, I asked then, did God reject his people? And you see the answer he gives. Look, by, by no means. That's what he's saying in verse 1. By no means, I am an Israelite myself. 
And Paul's saying, look, while many rejected Jesus, not all of us did, God's continued to save some. And, and for those who might think, well, look, now that those of us who weren't from a Jewish background, those of us who weren't part of Israel, Gentiles, there's loads of us in now who've become Christians. Was that because really, when you get down to it, people like us were just a bit more spiritual? Is that why we're in? It is the reason we're in and lots of other people rejected it because we were a bit better in some way. And Paul says, be very careful. Be very careful if you start to think like that. Come and find verse 19 with me from this reading that we had. Verse 19, it's halfway down the, the second column of page 1138. And just look at what... Paul is saying to these Gentile Christians he's writing to, some of whom will be in Rome, he says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Some some people were out so that I could come in. We're we're kind of a big deal. Paul says, yeah, that's right. Some were broken off so you could be brought in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith Do not be arrogant, but tremble. And you hear what Paul's saying. Don't start thinking you're better. So what is God doing with his people Israel? If you want a little summary of it, it's towards the end of the reading we had, verse 25. Just look down to the bottom of the page. Paul says this to them. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel, God's Old Testament people, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's, that's kind of a summary of what he's been arguing in this chapter. And follow this through. Try and get your head around what he's saying. It's something like this. Paul's saying, look, God, in working out his plan to save people, has chosen to use even the way many of his people would reject Jesus. As Israel said, no, God would use that to bring others in. And you think, really? Could he do that? How's that work out? If you get time this evening and over this week, if you go back and read through the book of Acts, which is the account of the, the early church, you'll see the way it works out as the, as the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Peter, James, John, some of the others, as they begin to speak, many from Israel believe and the church begins to grow. But then the church is persecuted by Jewish leaders. They say no to Jesus. And as they're persecuted, the church is scattered. They they flee from Jerusalem and Judea and they begin to spread around that part of the world. They begin to travel through the Gentile world and as they go and speak, more and more people put their faith in Jesus. Some Jews, loads of Gentiles, 
that carried on all the way through the years, all the way across the world, all the way down to today, here in Cambridge, sitting miles away from Jerusalem, people being told about Jesus. And it's not an accident. God chose his choice. God chose to do it that way. He's been in control of everything. Paul wants you to know that. God's not failed. He's not in any way swapped onto a plan B. It's what he was always planning to do. Uh, this is the, the God of the Bible, that even as people oppose him, and by his grace, it just ends up pushing his plans further on. And see, so here's what you need to know. And could you pop up the next slide? There we go. In these three chapters, here's kind of what's being said. Look, God has always chosen to save some. And he does that through faith in Jesus. See, if people reject Jesus, they're doing what they want to do, and they're responsible for that. But even as they do that, God is never caught off guard. God uses it to further his kind plans to bring the message about Jesus to more and more people. And Paul's saying in this chapter as well, as he does that, he's not forgotten Israel. He's still got plans for them. And knowing that, if that's what these chapters are beginning to, to teach us, to tell us about this God and tell us about ourselves as well, if knowing that, how does it begin to help orientate life? If, if you're someone like the kind of people that Paul was writing to back then, people who would view themselves as on the inside, people who are trusting Jesus, well, here's four things to think about. Here's the first one. Look, we're humble about ourselves. There's moments in life, you, you know this, that make you grateful and slightly shudder at the same time. In my early 20s, I was around at a friend's house. Uh, you know, there's a few of us around there. We're standing around chatting. I was in the kitchen. I was kind of standing chatting to someone, playing with one of the, the knives that were in one of those knife blocks there. And my mate said, picking up a large melon from the fruit bowl, hey, let's do this. I'll chuck the melon up in the air. You get the carving knife and see as it comes down if you can whack it in half with a carving knife. I said, that sounds like a great idea. <coughs> Go for it. And he threw it up. And as I brought the knife down as fast as I could, he grabbed the melon again. No idea why I did it. I managed to pull the knife back just as it hit his fingers. It was a deep cut. It was bleeding into the sink. We managed to put some kind of bandage on it, but the fingers were still intact. Um, I said to him, why did you do that? He said, no idea. I still shudder when I think about it. I really do. It, it's a horrible thought. I still imagine. I still shudder, and, um, and I can't tell you how grateful I am. I still have the feeling, you know, this feeling, what if? What if I'd followed through with that knife fingers on the counter and if you get a sense of just how horrible that would be you'll understand Paul if you come back to chapter 11 and verse 20 at the end of that verse we read it a minute ago at the end of that verse chapter 11 verse 20 when he said 
Do not be arrogant, but tremble. I am someone who by nature would be implacably opposed to God. But if I'm a Christian, it's only because he has chosen to save me. And if you, like me, at times think, well, why me? Why me? The answer is not anything in myself, but only in God, only because he's kind. And if you think for a moment, what if he hadn't? What if he'd let me follow through in opposing him? When I begin, when I begin to feel, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal around here. Paul says, David, don't be arrogant. Tremble. See, have you noticed the way when you forget, when you forget even for a moment that you're someone God saved, it's much easier to look down on others, to be snippy with them, to begin to talk about them, or just ignore them, how it's easy to focus on their faults and overlook your own. I think when you begin to remember the gospel, you begin to orientate life in this way. I'm going to treat you as if I suspect when things are difficult between us that it will be my sinful responses that will be the main part of the problem. If you understand what Paul's saying, you'll understand we're, we're humble about ourselves. Here's the next thing. Look, we're, we're concerned about others. The, the past few weeks, you'll have noticed if you've been here, won't you, the, the way Paul's spoken about his own people. Again, flick back if you can. We'll do a little bit of flicking. Chapter 9 and verse 3, at, at top of page 1136. In verse 3, just up there, Paul says this, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. And then if you look down to, look over to chapter 10 in verse 1, he, he says a similar thing again, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. It's my birthday the other week, and uh, a friend in Cambridge gave me a present. It was this, David Todd's sermon illustration ge- uh, generator. They've, uh, they've discovered that there's only certain kinds of things I say when I'm up at the front, and it basically says here, here's how my illustrations go. There's um, stuff about Scotland. Uh, a guy I knew when I lived in Sheffield, uh, a guy I knew when I lived in Derby, uh, and a guy I knew when I lived in London was at Oak Hill. That's kind of how my illustrations work. It's a great present, isn't it? It's very amusing. So look, just for a change, just for a change, Reese is a guy I know from Worcester. That's a bit left field, isn't it? You weren't expecting that. It's Worcester, eh? You know, it's people from all over the place. Well, Reese is a guy I know from Worcester. He told me once how his mum and dad had friends from their church round for dinner. And they were talking about a young man from their church who'd gone off to uni and he'd recently graduated and he'd, he'd got a job in the city and they were saying how well he was doing. He made a real success of his life. Got a great degree, he's got a great job, he's going really well. And he said after a while he felt he had to say to his, his parents and these other friends from church, look, what are you talking about? You know he stopped going to church. 
You know he seems to have given up totally following Jesus. What good will it do him in the end, even if he has a good job in the city? You read Paul's words and you you realize he he leans more in the direction of Reese. He's concerned about people. Part of the reason he's writing and going to Rome is so they can help him on his his missionary journey that he's planning to Spain. Now, this whole letter is prompted by concern for others. And it's the same for us, isn't it? I know you do this. It's, it's, why, we, it's why we pray for our friends. It's why we risk speaking to them. It's why we support Christians even in other countries because we know what's really important and we feel it. We feel it for them. What? What? if they follow through in just rejecting God. And so we hope as we pray, perhaps, perhaps this kind and gracious God will save them too. Are you keeping that concern? Oh, here's the third thing. Look, we're, we're limited and liberated by Scripture. Paul's been explaining in these chapters Profound truths about life. And again, let me show you a couple of places. You see where he gets it from. Chapter 9 and verse 13, page 1136, part of the way down. He says it like this, just as it is written. And he, he quotes from the Old Testament. You come over to chapter 10 and verse 11 on the right hand side of, the, of page 1137 uh, and he's saying it again as scripture says and he quotes something else, he does it lots of times loads of times all through these chapters he takes us to the Bible and we're living in a time when people are beginning to say look what you feel that's really what's true and even as Christians we can we can want a kind of DIY faith. I'll, I'll kind of mix and match myself. Look, I, I enjoy belief in God. I really like forgiveness. I get the singing and the community. It's all good. But some of the other stuff about relationships. Or, or Jesus being the only way to God. I'm, I'm not going to go with that. And I'm happy with leaders as long as they don't boss me. Just lead me when I want to be led. And there's space for our feelings and there's opportunity for our choices. But Paul's saying, if you really want to understand, if you really want to understand God and yourself and how to orientate life, then you need to be limited by the Scriptures. Here's where you find God. Here's where you find who you are. Here's where you'll understand social concern, right and wrong, gender, sex, identity. You can't define yourself by your own choices. God has to tell us who we are. But these words that limit will also liberate you They'll liberate you from the anxiety of having to define yourself and wondering if your choices will really make you secure because they'll show you God's choice to save you in Jesus. 
And look, here's the fourth thing, as we think about how this God and his gospel should orientate life. And it's this, we're always moving towards worship. As you begin to ponder the God Paul's describing and the people we are, uh, you realize we're helpless and hopeless in the world, but God, with unstoppable grace, has moved it in unfaltering plans to bring about incredibly the saving of countless people through the death of his son. And you think, who'd have predicted? Who'd have anticipated the generosity he'd shown? And you realize God's big and we're small. God's rich and we're poor. God's wise and we're foolish. And we have nothing to offer, yet God bids us come and receive. And you find yourself before a God like this, feeling maybe like Elijah on Mount Carmel in that Old Testament story, wanting to cover your head before him, overwhelmed by his power and his grace. And you want to worship him for his unsearchable plans and his infinite wisdom and his, well, his glory. And if you never feel that, there's something not quite right. That's what Paul does. Verses 33 to 36 of chapter 11. Just come on to it and have a glance at it. We're going to read these words in a little while. As Paul breaks from teaching, as you realize with Paul, there comes a point when you've got got to stop thinking about God and, and just bow down and worship before him. Four ways our lives should begin to orientate if we know this God. We're humble about ourselves. We're concerned about others. We're limited and liberated by Scripture. We're always moving towards worship. So I wonder if you think about those four. I wonder if there's one that you feel you've drifted from. And perhaps tonight, as we look at His Word, God's wanted to reorientate you to himself. Well, let's have a moment to pray. And then as Rachel leads us, we're going to continue to worship. Uh, let's have a moment of, of quiet prayer to think on these words.